More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Welcome to episode 102 of Survivor Sanctuary. It's Kelly, and I'm glad to be joining you once again for another episode of the podcast. Very excited about a special guest we've got on the podcast today, Steve Black of the Ezekiel 33 Project. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. But right off the bat, I want to remind you that you can become a patron of the podcast, patreon.com forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. And when you become a patron, you support this podcast monthly with a gift starting at $5. And you get some pretty cool stuff as a reward for being a patron of the podcast. For instance, our patrons at the $10 level and above got an advance release of this podcast 24 hours before you did. So if you're not a patron, you could become one today. Patreon.com forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. Lots of goodies, including the advanced release of the podcast, an extra podcast each month at certain levels, and a Zoom get together monthly as well, plus more great stuff, digital downloads, and extra great content that you're not going to get anywhere else. Patreon.com forward slash Survivor Sanctuary. Well, Steve Black is a longtime listener of Survivor Sanctuary. He's been around from the beginning. He founded the Ezekiel 33 Project, which you can find at Ezekiel33Project.org. And Steve is here to share his story with us today on Survivor Sanctuary. How are you doing today, Steve? Hey, Kelly. I'm doing great. I am so glad to hear it. And I just want to say right off the bat that you are one of my very first. In fact, I'm pretty sure you are the first encourager of this podcast. And even before it was a podcast, I started a blog called No Less Than Light. And that, right, it kind of just like eventually turned into a podcast because, well, I like to talk and for me, it's easier than writing. So, but I remember still the little apartment that I was living in at the time and I had just started this blog and you reached out via email and you gave me such an encouraging email. And I still remember that to this day. And I'm sure, you know, because you blog and it's just nice to hear encouragement from people because it's. Obviously, we're not doing this for the large amounts of cash that we make because we're not making <laughs> large, <laughs> large or small amounts of cash. That's This is not a lucrative business speaking out against sex abuse in the church. Um, no. But I just I will always remember you as the very first person that I think ever gave me feedback on the blog and who ever gave me encouragement on the blog. So thanks for that. I appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah. I, well, I just when I see that this is a small-ish community. Uh, and when I see people doing, doing work, you know, I want to, I want to do what I can to encourage them because we're all kind of in the, I guess you could say we're all in the struggle together. And, you know, I, I found your blog and, and I was reading it and it, it just really connected with me and I wanted to, wanted to do that. So yeah, I appreciate that. That's, well, I appreciate um, it too. It was like very one of the very first things. I I will never forget that. And I mean, it's an exciting feeling too. Like, oh my gosh, someone is actually reading my blog. <laughs> That's crazy, about, isn't it? <laughs> right. There is a human being that just read what I wrote and is responding. So that's always fun. So yeah, you were from back in the beginning and you've you've been an encouragement since then too. I think that you're a part of our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group as well. Yes. And uh, then I, I found one of your uh, messages on SurvivorSanctuary.com, which I explained a couple episodes ago, I think, that technology and me, I guess it's not technology necessarily. It's like a platform of some kind. I don't know exactly what I would call that, but it hates me. And every time I set something up, it's like all of the emails just disappear into a black hole. And 
something happens where six months later, I'll have like 90 messages and people are probably thinking (laughs) this chick just doesn't answer her emails. (laughs) So I got that message and I'm like, you know what? You are, you have been here from the beginning and you have a, a good story to tell. I mean, good in the sense that, you know, you're an advocate and you're fighting for survivors of sexual abuse, including in your own family. So I wanted to have you on the podcast today. Sure. Well, thank you, Kelly. So I thought we could get started by you sharing how you got into advocacy, because as you said, like it's a, it's a small group of us there. There's not like, I mean, I think that it's growing all the time as people get more vocal, but this is not something that people just, it's like this glamorous thing to be a part of. So what happened in your life that caused you to have a heart for people who are being sexually abused within the church? Okay. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Yeah, I guess the, the best way to put it is um, it impacted my family. My wife caught my nephew uh, abusing my daughter when she was six. Mm-hmm. And that kind of changed the trajectory of, uh, of family life uh, there for a while uh, because what ended up happening is the people that ended up leaving my nephew with us to watch knew of an issue that he had and didn't share it with us. When we called them on it, oh, well, he's never done anything like that before. And then, you know, lo and behold, we find out six weeks later that he had been thrown out of his house because he had been caught again abusing a young girl who was who was in his house, uh, his half-sister. So... It was really complex, and then that that ended up leading to, I guess you could say, a series of of years where uh, I'll I'll just say it. I, I dreaded October. I hated October, and the reason why I hated October is, well, let me back up a little bit. We went along with what the family told us we ought to do and how we treated the situation. We were married young. We lived in the same town as this family was, and we hadn't been steered wrong before. So why would we be steered, you know, steered wrong with this? So we listened to them and, you know, followed their advice on how we would deal with the situation that happened with our daughter. And every bit of information that we got was so incredibly wrong. And in fact, so incredibly illegal um, according to the laws in the states of t- state of Texas, that it was pretty rough. And short of the long of it, the the first Thanksgiving after this happened, we followed what they wanted us to do. And that entire Thanksgiving uh, experience uh, was with my daughter wrapped around my leg, and she wouldn't she wouldn't let me go. And it was that point that between, between Thanksgiving and Christmas, we basically laid down the law and we said, look, our daughter will not be in the presence of him ever again. Full stop. And with that, that led to every October, there would be some little home improvement, something or another that I'd be asked over for. And basically it was, that was the excuse to get me in their presence so they could cajole us or could try to cajole me into uh, allowing my daughter in this individual's presence. And at that point, then, you know, the weaponized forgiveness began, you know, where, you know, I was wicked, wicked, evil, evil, bad uh, for, you know, taking this stance and for not forgiving this individual for, for what had happened. And that, that wasn't the case at all. I had, I guess you could say I had forgiven him but I wasn't willing to extend trust to him, right. uh, which, which there's a difference there. You know, at the end of the day, went through about five years of this, of this game of imagine air quotes. When I say this of family meetings where, you know, essentially we, we were told how wrong we were. And then, you know, over that course of time, my wife and I felt that something wasn't quite right. We didn't, we couldn't put our finger on it, but something just wasn't right. So, you know, we, we would seek advice. Well, you know, you're raised in the church, maybe a little bit of a sheltered life and whatnot. And, you know, what are you taught? Well, you know, those elders at that church, you know, they're, they're wise and they'll give you, they'll give you good advice kind of thing. Right. Right. Or go, or go to the minister and, and he'll give you good advice. And at the end of the day, you know, we ended up having, 
you know, church leaders, ministers, basically giving us maybe a little bit uh, softer of an edge than what we receive from family. But uh, certainly no one even thought about reporting this, mm. even though they, they knew. And according to the state, they were considered mandated reporters. And I was so incredibly frustrated with the lack of information that there was out there for dads like me. And I was starting to do research and I was starting to learn about this and I was seeing more and more blogs. Uh, I think it, maybe it was in this time frame, maybe that I tripped across your early work with no less than light. And it was just, it was amazing to me, the desert of information that was out there for right. a young family or, or, you know, a young father that's trying to do the right thing, uh, based on, you know, what has happened with their family. And at the end of the day, it was shocker because so many, you know, seem to have so many issues with the public schools and don't get me wrong, our public schools, they, they do have some challenges. My wife, my wife is a teacher. She has seen it, <laughs> but <laughs> I can say of five years of conversations with ministers, elders, and family, I can say that it took 45 minutes of a conversation in a public school setting where my wife previewed a video that my daughter was to see. And when my wife broke down in tears as a scene exactly like what my wife had stumbled across when she caught what was going on with our daughter. At that point in time, the counselor said, okay, I have enough evidence here to suspect that something has gone on. And that counselor essentially told us, look, you have 48 hours. Here's a number you can call and you can report what happened or you can do nothing, but either way an investigation is going to get opened up. So at that point we were just stunned. We were like, okay, all this time, all of this time we knew something was wrong, but we couldn't put our finger on it, but here it is, here it goes. So at the, at the end of the day, we ended up getting investigated by the state as did uh, the individual. And it was somewhat of a relief because what we learned was the steps that we had put in place in order to isolate our daughter from her abuser. The state chose not to pursue anything against us because of the measure, the measures that we took to ensure that she wasn't around him um, were strong enough and hadn't been broken. We hadn't wavered any that the state basically no build us on any, on any wrongdoing. The interesting thing about that is the number of people who were mandated reporters that there was no investigation, but yeah. at the end of the day, it kind of validated our, our, our stance. And then from there, I just, I was astonished. I was completely astonished and I was like, okay, there's a lot of bad information or no information out there. Um, and in the research I was doing, I knew that there, there was something to do, but I didn't know what. Then fast forward a few years, same family, nephew's dad ends up in federal prison on a plea bargain for child porn. Oh, wow. We were unaware that what he was in for, as a matter of fact, that family told us that we didn't need to know what he was in for. When he was released from prison was right around, guess, right around October. October, I was going to say. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> and um, at that point in time, right then and there, uh, my wife and I booked a, uh, we booked a camping trip and we went camping for Thanksgiving. We didn't even nice. show. We weren't even in town. And, uh, you know, we got back in town and the, the next week started and, you know, it was kind of like, you know, five, four, three, two, one. And we get the, get the phone call. Hey, when you do, we need you to meet over at the house. We need to talk about something. And, uh, we were immediately berated for not being present during Thanksgiving 
because our presence was vital to the rehabilitation of this family member uh. um, who had, he was a convicted, convicted sex offender. And they didn't know that we know what he had been convicted of at this point. And we asked point blank, we said, tell us what he did. And, you know, the response was, well, you don't need to know. Okay, we need to know. Well, you, we really don't think you need to know. And then at that point, I revealed, look, here's the deal. Here's what he was convicted of. Here is the situation. And, oh, by the way, his preferred target is, oh, I don't know, the same age as my son at the time. No, we're not going to be around and then my question essentially was, did you not learn anything from the previous investigation? I can't put my family at risk. There is no way I'm going to end up putting my family in a situation where something might happen to my son and right. then also be put in a situation to where we are really in a knockdown drag out because I guarantee you, if anything happens, I'm going to be on the phone reporting it immediately and you're going to be screaming at me. So let's just save ourselves the grief. And right. we just won't be around whenever they're around. So that's kind of the, that's kind of the backstory of the, the what, I guess you wow. could say the what, <laughs> the what happened. First of all, that is, that takes a lot of guts. And I say that as someone like, you know, you come from a dysfunctional family and not you, but I mean, like when one comes from a dysfunctional family, it's, it just seems like I know in my family. If something happens and there's some sort of conflict, what we're all supposed to do is pretend everything's fine and just be around each other anyway. And everybody's supposed to smile and everybody's supposed to get along and just act like everything's good, even though inwardly everybody's walking on eggshells and feeling yeah. horrible and not wanting to be there at Thanksgiving. Uh -huh. And then when somebody actually does like put their foot down and try to protect their own family and their own peace and their own mental well-being, they get a lot of flack as like the troublemakers, even though they're not. They're just the people who are like, you're not going to mess with my family. Like we have totally. to clear boundaries. So that first, I just wanted to say that right off the bat, super brave and like awesome because for a lot of people, we just grow up with that mentality. And I know in my family for sure that you just get along and you make peace no matter the cost to you personally, like you just get along and you, you show up with the child molesters or, or whatever, and, you know, break bread and enjoy your Thanksgiving and put your family at risk and put your personal peace at risk because that's what you do because that keeps everybody happy when everyone's getting along and it's crap and we shouldn't have to live like that. But so many people do because we're so pressured and you don't want to come across as like the mean one in the family who doesn't want anything to do with everybody else. But I think that's incredible. Like that you were just like, yeah, no, we're not going to do this anymore. Sorry. Bye. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it was it was certainly it, it was everything you just described, you know, for the for the five years before the school incident. That was so incredibly challenging because, you know, it. It, you're right. You know, I mean, we were asked to, one, not talk about it at all to anyone. So us speaking to those in church that we were seeking advice from, that was explicitly against the will of the family. It was very much to be the Norman Rockwell family. We were to be silent on what had happened type of thing. The advice from church was essentially that we needed to figure out how to be family given what had happened, but no real direction one way or the other. And then later on in a conversation with one of the, uh, with another individual, you know, basically it was, you know, what you've, what you've got here is you've got a family issue because, you know, we attended the same church as, as family, right? So yeah. essentially they were recusing themselves from any family drama Rather than, I mean, I guess here's the way that I think about it is if you have a family where you have some children coming to others, some people other than the parents for advice within that congregation, 
should that not be a red flag as to, to something might be seriously wrong because they're not trusting the advice of their parents? Right. That was, it was, it was a sweetened down version uh, of kind of the Norman Rockwell family. It was almost, it was almost as if it were the, uh, the Norman Rockwell for the congregation. It seems to be like, I mean, not just in families, but in churches too, like you kind of keep up the appearance and Mm -hmm. everybody just be nice to each other so that we can look to the world or to whoever, like we've got it all together and everything's fine. And I don't know where, I mean, that's not in scripture anywhere. It just isn't. I mean, we're supposed to let our light shine. Yeah. But if, if you have some huge problem, speaking the truth about it is never, is never something discouraged in God's word. Like we're always supposed to be truthful. And I think that that it's like this in families and churches in so many places, it's like nobody wants to just speak the honest truth. You have to water it down and you have to play this game where, you know, you're just playing nice and being like the Norman Rockwell painting so that everybody can just look good. And meanwhile, we're supposed to stand up for truth. And I mean, the truth is something horrible happened to your daughter. And the truth is that your nephew's father was doing horrible things and things that any parent should say, hey, this is a deal breaker for us spending time with you. Yeah, for sure. And that's that's kind of the, you know, the basis behind the name of of the ministry, you know, the Ezekiel 33 project. So going to Ezekiel 33 verses two through six, it describes two different types of watchmen and who's responsible in a given situation. So you've got one watchman who's going to sound the alarm. And if people don't heed that alarm and something bad happens to them, then it's the people whose problem it is because they didn't heed the alarm. Right. And then you've got the other watchman who doesn't sound any alarm at all. And that particular watchman, at the end of the day, he's the one that's responsible for the bad that happens to the people because he didn't sound the alarm. So yeah, yeah, that's, um, that's a good point. That's and really, that's, that, that's exactly how it rolls. I think that's a really good picture of, of what we see so often in, in the church where sexual abuse is concerned and not even just sexual abuse, but you have that where people, people think, Oh, I'm just this neutral party. I just don't want to say anything. Let's just, you know, everybody just get along and, and people feel like they're doing their part if they tell everyone to forgive, but that's not what it says in scripture. And if, if you are a watchman, like you should be warning people and it's Mm -hmm. not, it's not a sin. It's not uh, gossip. It's not slander. It's not unforgiveness it's necessary to keep people safe. I think that when you look at Jesus's ministry and the things that he said, especially about children, that it's, it's really obvious that we should care a lot more about speaking the truth to protect people rather than covering everything up. So we just look good. Right. And you know, that Kelly, one thing about exactly what you're describing. So there's, there's a term that I have, uh, it's, it's in my blog and it's also, it's also in my book, but it's called the molester's toolbox. And essentially there's three tools in the molester's toolbox. And those tools are deception, empathy, and apathy. And empathy can be used in an offensive way and in a defensive way by the abuser in order to either gain access, which would be the offensive, or to build in deniability in order to keep people from doing anything. And right. it, it's it's kind of that defensive empathy that you were talking about right there in a lot of ways. I think, though, that explaining that to people in like real time and just kind yeah. of trying to get them to understand like that there are people who are literally predators. There are people who literally are in your church because they want to hunt for your children, for your teenagers, for whoever. And and that's the place where they feel super comfortable. And they're using all of these tactics, like in your toolbox that you're describing, they're, they're using all of these things that I think that we're brought up to think are just great, you know, and they are in their purest sense, but they're kind of using all of this goodness against people. And that's how Mm. that, that's how they get away with it. That's how, when something happens, people are able to say, Oh, listen, let's not call the police because that's going to ruin this guy's life forever. (laughs) You know, like let's, let's just forgive him and he's really sorry. And 
you know, let's deal with it in here and read some scriptures to them and everything's going to be fine. And then you yeah, have so to it's so yeah, totally. I mean, and that's the funny thing about that is that that is the the two things that in in my story that was one of the big things. We didn't want to ruin the life of this young man who had who had molested my daughter, and then in the withholding what the charges were against the the father was all of that was about didn't want to uh, warp our perception of him. Uh, you know, it was a, it was a completely a, pro- a protection racket, if you will. Right. It's it's literally not about supporting uh, victims of abuse. It's not about helping families through the crisis. It's it seems like all of the effort and all of the energy is put into ministering to the perpetrator and like ministering in air quotes, because that's really not what you're doing. It's you're basically wasting your energy. And that's not to say that no one who who commits you know sexual abuse can ever change or ever ever be different like i'm i'm not saying that there aren't instances where it happens but when you get to the point where someone has so given over to that like the odds of them changing are just very low and so you're wasting your breath essentially to try and mm-hmm. rehabilitate and i don't even think people are trying to rehabilitate i think the perpetrator cries sheds a tear or two and says oh my childhood was horrible and i'm just going through stress and this happened and then our empathy like kicks in and we're like, Oh my goodness, you poor thing. You're under so much stress. And so it's like you minimize what's actually been done and make it all about the pain and suffering that the perpetrator has gone through. And what you get as a result is people continuing to be abused. And I think the church just becoming even more blinded to the problem that they have because, and I think that that is one of the things that makes it the absolute hardest when it comes to sexual abuse in the church is that spiritual element, because that's what we're fighting against. We're not Mm -hmm. fighting against people who are wicked, who are saying sexual abuse is great and there's nothing wrong with it. Like that's another monster, you know, that's out there. And you, like you see a monster like that, like, oh, we should normalize sexually abusing children and we should, why is this bad? And let's, let's all be minor attracted persons and, have a place in society and nobody can get mad at us, you know, and like flaunt our attraction sexually to small children. Like that's, you're fighting that. And it's like, okay, we know the enemy, but when you're fighting grace and mercy and compassion and empathy and the love of Jesus and forgive people, or you're not going to be forgiven by the father. That's a hard enemy to fight because those are all things that are good and, and they're weaponized. And I think that that the people, I won't say all of them, but a lot of the people who weaponize it don't realize that's what they're doing. And I don't mean like people in leadership or people who have something to gain by doing it, but just like Christians in general. I see people just saying stuff on Facebook and different different mediums where it's just like these trite little things about forgiveness and you know, against. and it's, I get so frustrated because it's like, you're not using this in context and you're not understanding, like just saying, oh, let's forgive doesn't fix everything. And it endangers our kids. Yeah. It's, it's amazing with that. It, I, I share your, your aggravation with, you know, sometimes, you know, social media just want, makes me want to, uh, I don't know, just scream or throw the phone down or something just because it, it's just like, you're oversimplifying the situation here, <laughs> you know, right. uh, there, there's, there's so much more. And, you know, the, the other thing is like, there's no test is the wrong word, but it, it's almost like there's this test that a survivor must go through in order to prove their level of, of forgiveness, if you will. Right. Uh, but there's no test on the perpetrator's point. Nope. Um, and like I would, and I would argue you know, like in a church setting, okay, so, you know, you have an individual who's, who's been accused of, of predation and they say that they've repented and they say that they're all good. Okay. Well, let's take away the one thing that if they're truly wanting to hunt that they want, let's take away their, their access to the kids. Let's maybe even set up, I don't know, uh, we do it for shut-ins all the time. Why don't we have Why don't we have a group of individuals go and have a church service in this individual's home, and they don't even darken the door of the church building? A lot of people would say that's harsh, 
But if you watch the reaction of someone, whenever they're told that's what they're going to get, more than likely they're going to lash out in anger if they want to hunt. Yeah. And, and, and that'll tell you, but we don't, but we don't do that. Yeah. We don't even get to that point. (laughs) No, we don't even get to that point. But then the standard that we hold the survivor to on the other end is when they make a a decision of, okay, you know what? I'm just not going to be in the presence of this individual. It's, it's thrown in their face. It's, it's brought up. They, they just, they want to, to forget about it. They want to move on, but it's brought up constantly and they're spiritually, well, spiritually abused, you know, in order to, for people to gain what it is that they want out of the survivor. And it's just, it's backwards. It's just completely backwards. Right. And I think that the way that you prove as a victim of sexual abuse, the way that you prove that you have forgiven, which is apparently the most important thing in the whole world, like that, that you forgive, the way that you prove it, uh, that you're not bitter and that you're not holding grudges and that you're you know, being the right exact amount of spiritual that you need to be is you never talk about it again. You never bring it up. You never discuss it. Don't say anything about it. Don't advocate for people <laughs> who've been abused. Don't talk about what happened to you or your perpetrator. Don't ever feel uncomfortable. And if you do feel uncomfortable, don't ever express that you are. And I think that the exact same criteria is used to prove whether a perpetrator is repentant, that they don't bring it up and they don't talk about it. And that only benefits the perpetrator. This does not benefit in any way the person who has been abused, whose life is never going to be the same. Yeah. Silence only benefits one side. Right. But silence is what people require of survivors to prove that they are over it, that they're not bitter. Like if you're bringing it up, that means you're dwelling on the past. If you're bringing it up, that means you haven't given it to God. If you're bringing it up. So it's hard for me. Like I have a whole podcast, like I have a whole yeah. podcast talking about sexual abuse. And so people might look at that and say, well, obviously you haven't forgiven or you're just bitter because you're, you're still talking about this. And I mean, obviously I know that that's not true and it doesn't bother me because I know that that's not true. But when you put that on the shoulders of someone who's been through sexual abuse, like, first of all, they should be allowed to feel their feelings around what's happened to them. And the fact that it's so life altering and life changing and the effects, the good news is if you get help and intervention early, like things can be really great and survivors can do really well. And for some people that doesn't happen. For some people, they have really bad effects from childhood sexual abuse that never go away. And while while you're struggling with this, you have to put on this happy face that's like, everything's great because Jesus is Lord and and he wants me to forgive and that's what I've done. And so then the perpetrator is laughing all the way to the next victim that they've chosen. Right. And they're going to choose them because that's what they do. Right. And it's it's interesting, and, and Kelly, I'm I'm curious if you've ever if you've ever experienced this because because you mentioned you know you opened the door a little bit, but in in my work at least there there was actually one time that I was sharing with a group of church leaders you know what it was that I do with Ezekiel 33, and when one of them stopped me, and he just asked me point blank, he said, "Don't you just want to let it go?" Mm. Mm. And you know, I was thinking to myself, okay, the very fact that you're asking me that question is all the more reason now that I'm going to stand on the gas just a little bit harder because, (laughs) because there's so many more people that, that need, that need the encouragement that need to know that, okay, this does happen. It's common. And, you know, here's some, here's some things to do when this happens. Oh, and by the way, Here's some things that you can do as a family. Here's some things that you can do as a small group. Here's some things that you can do as a congregation in order to improve, one, your awareness, and two, improve your response in the event that that abuse does surface, because chances are it will at some point. Right. I had a similar experience. Um, I was asked by the pastor that I disclosed to who was pastoring the church where the man who abused me was um, a lead deacon, essentially like an assistant pastor. And so when I disclosed to him, he asked me for the contact information of like my dad and my pastor. I think, I think some of that is rooted in like independent fundamental Baptist, like, you know, women are kind of 
second class citizens a little bit like you know we're we need a man to answer for us or something I'm like well I'm in my 30s I'm not sure why you need to talk to my dad but okay I'm thinking okay maybe he just needs to make sure that I'm not a crazy person you know and that I'm not going around like leaving random messages on people's Facebooks you know telling them about abuse because I'm a nut job or something okay fine so I gave him the information I really really I was just really raw with emotion when it all happened. And so I tried so hard to be as humble and as cooperative as possible through this whole process. And that's how I felt the whole time. Cause I just felt so like, just, I was a nervous wreck that people were going to think like, again, cause I'd seen it. I knew that it happened that people kind of gang up on the victim and they're upset that the victim is disclosing. They're upset that the victim is messing up their lives. And I got all of that. But in the beginning, when he asked to speak to these people, I thought, okay, well, I'm going to have to tell my pastor because if I don't, and he just gets a phone call from some random guy from 14,000 miles away, like what in the world is he going to think? So um, (laughs) I had a meeting with him. And I'm just like, hey, I just have to tell you something in case you get a phone call. You know, this this happened to me when I was a kid. And, you know, I, I disclosed to a pastor because I'm I'm worried that this deacon, he still has access to kids. He's prominent in the church. And I I'm worried that he's still abusing because I never disclosed. So one of the very first things out of this pastor's mouth and God bless him a good guy. You know, I, I don't, I don't have any bitterness toward him. It just, it just is like one of those things you just throw your hands in the air and kind of roll your eyes inside. And like, there it is. You know, his yeah. first reaction was, well, you know, hopefully it, this was just the once, like, because I told him I was scared. He was still abusing children. Wow. Because he had been, you know, hopefully you're the only victim. Like that's what we hope for. And you were sounding and, the alarm. Exactly. And, and he's like, like in this fairy tale world of maybe somebody who doesn't know anything about sexual abuse, but in my mind, this was a person and I, and I was very clear to say this, like the way that he got me alone and the way that he manipulated my family to get me alone and manipulated situations as an adult, it, who was learning about sexual abuse, it suddenly dawned on me that he was like full on a predator. He wasn't like some person that just like oh, oopsie, I just molested a kid accidentally. Like he planned this. And so it was my fear based on that. Like he had probably done it to a lot of other people. And, but the first thing the pastor said was, you know, hopefully it was just the one. And I imagine that you just really want to put this behind you. And, and I just, my heart kind of broke in that moment. And I, again, I, I tried to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Like, don't think people are against you. But it was heartbreaking to hear that because I'm sitting there just raw from having just realized for the first time in my life that I had been groomed and sexually abused. I had always, my whole life, thought of this situation as just a random situation I found myself in, that it happened accidentally. It never clicked in my brain because, I mean, it happened when I was six. So your brain doesn't click that way. You know, you don't. The nuance is lost on you. Um, But as an adult who was learning about predators, it all of a sudden just dawned on me, oh my gosh, he was grooming me. He was grooming my family and he planned all of this. There's no way that like he just magically would appear at my house when he knew that my parents were gone. And there's no way that he just would magically like, there were too many things that could not have been coincidences. And as a child, I had no idea because that's not how my mind worked. But as an adult, I saw it very clearly. And so I'm raw from just having like, first of all, that I have to tell people that this happened to me and and what I'm going through because this pastor needed my pastor's information to maybe call him or message him. I didn't know. Um, So that's embarrassing enough and you're raw enough from that. But just to have it been like, well, I imagine that your ultimate goal here is just to put this in your past immediately. (laughs) It's like, no, I just realized that I was sexually abused as a kid. I had spent my whole life denying it. And I just realized that, that a predator who preyed on me had been free to have like a buffet of children in this little church and not be stopped for decades. And that was just, you know, so to, to hear, like, I imagine, you know, your number one goal is just put this behind you. <laughs> it's like, no, nah, no, not really, but thank you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, 
you know, exactly. You know, there's so many parallels. My, my daughter happened to be six as mm-hmm. well. And although the, my nephew was a minor at the time, you know, looking at it now, looking at what he did, how he did it, and then, you know, more that my daughter's disclosed to me over the years about, you know, what fully happened that day. You know, I remember, you know, I, I mentioned, you know, we called, we called the family on it and said, look, this has happened before. And no, 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 no. When you said that, it just completely brought back to mind, you know, that, that observation of, you know, this is way beyond normal. This is completely abnormal. And I'm just now figuring this out and you want me to do what? Yeah. Right on. (laughs) Right. Right That's what it's when, when someone is, it's not their situation. And sometimes even if it is their situation, if they're people who like to hide from problems, but it happens a lot when it's a person you've gone to for advice that you've gone to for help. It's not a situation that involves their loved one or themselves. It seems to be the favorite, like just line. Let's put this in the past. Let's put this behind us. Let's forgive. He's really sorry. Let's move on. And let's not talk about this. Let's not dwell on this. It's everybody's favorite, like brush it under the carpet and pretend it didn't happen. And it's only fun for the people who did not experience the abuse or whose close family members didn't experience it. Right. But again, that's what we have to do to prove that we are doing the godly thing by forgiving. Just be quiet. You know, that's how we know. <laughs> like we know you're healed. If, if you never mentioned sexual abuse again, then we know you've truly forgiven because you're not talking about it anymore. And right. it just seems to be the favorite advice from everyone. If you're talking about it, you're not healed. And if you're not talking about it, you're healed. And and really, all you're doing is catering to the desires of people who are uncomfortable talking about sexual abuse or who have something to gain from your silence. Yeah. But it's it's like wrapped in spiritual paper to make it seem like, you know, it's you and it's it's your relationship with God and it's your forgiveness and your spiritual maturity. When in reality, it's just people who need you to not talk about it because it makes them uncomfortable or it 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 means they're going to lose something. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's also, it's, it's just something that, um, to go along with that, it's just something that we don't talk about. I mean, at one point in time I did, well, I mean, I, I still do, but at one point in time I did the, was doing a presentation to a congregation and I did the math on how many sermons on anything that could be construed abuse I had heard in my lifetime. And at that particular time, I, I doing the math, it, it's rough, but I think I had heard roughly 2,000 sermons in my lifetime wow. between, between the different, given my, my church attendance and, you know, how right. many lessons I might hear in a week and then extrapolating that out, right? So over 2,000, and I could only count on one hand the number of lessons that I had heard. And then since what I've started with Ezekiel 33, if I discount any of the lessons that I might bring to a congregation, it still can only fit on one hand. I'm surprised you need a whole hand to count it because (laughs) really, I mean, to be fair, I was in church from the time I was, you know, an embryo. So I'm sure that there are a lot of sermons I don't remember, but I will say that, I mean, I, I was a pastor's kid and a missionary's kid. So we did Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, we did revivals. Mm-hmm. My dad traveled to preach. So there, it was like, you know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or Sunday through Wednesday services. It was, it was a rough, like yeah. I this as a kid, but it was a rough time. We were in church every minute, like constantly there. I heard so many sermons. I cannot, honestly, I cannot remember a single sermon that had anything to do with abuse or God's heart for abuse victims. And I don't even just mean sexual abuse, but I mean like family abuse, like Uh men who beat their wives or, or their children or abandonment of children or neglect. Like those, I mean, those are things that God has stuff to say about abandonment and neglect and how we care for our families and, and abuse. Like, there's a lot in God's word to say about it. And and yet I never heard a pastor say anything about it. You know, it was like these 
a lot of topics. I heard a lot of sermons and some of them really, really good, but I just don't ever remember hearing that. And it's, that's so sad to me. It's just, that's something that I, I don't understand that I, I don't see any excuse for it. Like none. Um, right. I was reading, I was going to join a church. It was a church of the Nazarene. And so of course you have to read the bylaws because they want to know that you're going to abide by it. And they have, you know, this massive section in their, I don't want to say constitution and bylaws, but it's like their code of Christian conduct. I think that's what it is. I'm such a good, a good Nazarene. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not with that church any longer, but so much to say about alcohol and like their stance on, on not drinking is that, well, it's hurt a lot of people. You know, some people have been really harmed by you know, having an alcoholic family member or, you know, they've been like getting killed by a drunk driver or whatever. So our stance is you never touch alcohol. And like, I had such a problem with that, not because I wanted to go out and drink, but I'm looking at this code of Christian conduct and there's literally nothing in there about abuse. Nothing. There's nothing in there about how you treat your family, about how, how wives and husbands treat each other. There's nothing about physical abuse, nothing about sexual abuse. Like there's dancing and there's alcohol. And it's like, you know, (laughs) I mean, not to say that you, if you really feel that strongly about dancing, okay, fine. Like if, if you must put something in there, but how, how is drinking and dancing, how do those get top bill in your code of Christian conduct? Like, have you ever read the Bible? And I, I told my pastor, like straight up, I have a problem signing this. I'm not like, I'm not a person who wants to like be an alcoholic and run around drinking every second. That's like, that's not why I'm protesting here. I'm protesting because this is ridiculous. Like where in your code of Christian conduct are we learning about how to treat our fellow human beings and why is is drinking a glass of wine the evil that you like why is that the hill you want to die on you know right right it was the decision of what to be silent on right yeah no, that's a really that's a really good way to put it like what to be silent on when we really vocal about you know the the person who who has a glass of wine on a saturday night and we're going to say literally nothing about the tons and tons and tons of people within our church who are experiencing sexual abuse. Like, and I think just as victims, we need to know, like victims of sexual abuse need to know God's heart for the abused. We need Mm -hmm. to know because, because so much of what happens when you're, when you experience sexual abuse and it's not even for me, I know that some people have a lot of flashbacks and I had so many flashbacks, but I always felt like my abuse could have been so much more horrifying than it was. And because it wasn't this violent, horrible thing, like that I didn't even deserve, like, that seems like a weird way to put it, but that's how I felt as a kid. I didn't deserve to say I had been abused because it could have been worse. And I think a lot of people have that feeling, but it messes with your brain so much and with your self-esteem and your self-worth, it just makes you feel like you're an unworthy human being. And, and it's not a conscious thing. It's very subconscious, but that's what your brain is learning as it's developing. Like I'm here to be used and discarded and it messes with your self-esteem. We need something, a message to counteract that. And like, yeah, of course we hear, oh, God loves you no matter what. But at the same time, you know, in the churches that I grew up in, it's God loves you no matter what, but don't let your hair touch your collar and don't let your skirt be above your knees and don't hold hands with a boy before you're married or kiss or don't, you know, like so many things. It's like Jesus loves you, but you know, that was, there is a, but in, in there every single time. And, you know, God loves you regardless of the sins you've committed, but you know, and then in addition to that, it's like, there's no Hey, here's how God feels about the fact that somebody sexually abused you. And what we generally hear is crickets, absolutely nothing. But if somebody does speak up about it, you go from crickets to, well, you need to forgive and not be bitter because God requires you to forgive. So you're left out in the cold either way. And it's just so harmful. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting with with our particular situation when, when my daughter went off to college the relief that she ended up getting because she had miles between uh, the grandparents and herself. And while she was there, she ended up getting a lot of help and ended up basically being, being able to work through, you know, a lot of that. 
and you know ultimately ended up it was kind of fascinating kind of kind of awesome to watch as well as well kind of as a bystander because it was it was a situation where my wife and I saw the transition from us owning the situation and doing the protection to our daughter full on creating a contract that was provided of, if you want a relationship with me as an adult, here's what you're going to have to do. Oh, wow. And basically stipulating, you know, how their relationship would roll and what was required of them in order for that relationship to, to remain intact and what would happen if there were violations of the contract. It was, it was really crazy to watch, but, you know, seeing her flourish and own that, and I guess you could say, you know, be okay with how it was that, you know, what it was that happened and taking ownership of, of the relationship. It was, you know, it was something else. Yeah, that's awesome. Like establishing boundaries, which is like, that's huge. Yeah, that's, that, huge. That, that's all it was. That that was all it was. It was, it was the, the establishment of, of boundary, <laughs> boundaries. And it was, uh, I think everyone was quite shocked when she came back and provided that. But, but, you know, good for her. Yeah, no, it's great for her. But yeah, the people who who benefit from everybody just playing nice and ignoring the elephant in the room or the abuse in the room or the abusers in the room, like the people that benefit from, you know, silence hate boundaries because they benefit from people having none. Oh, and, totally. But but good for her. That's awesome. And I think it's a, a testament too to you guys as well, like being able to establish boundaries with your family and just be like, yeah, no, my kids aren't going to be around child molesters or people who are addicted to child porn like that's not gonna happen (laughs) I mean that's that's a good example honestly like I love my my parents love my family but I I feel like just based on and I mean you know you can't go back in time but I think if a situation like that had happened in my family and our family being the way that it was that we probably would have sat down and been like, you know, Kelly, you need to just forgive him and like, whatever, if it had been a family member, I I really can see that happening in my family because you know, there was so much trauma in my parents' lives and in our lives. And we were just one big ball of dysfunction, but it's like, it's awesome that, I mean, first of all, that, that your wife caught him because who knows like how long that would have gone on. Who knows? Mm-hmm when she would have disclosed. It it could have been like me where it happened when I was six and it was like when I was 33 or 34 when I started being like, huh, maybe this sexual abuse has something to do with, you know, the dysfunction (laughs) in my life. I don't know. Like, maybe this is why all this crap is messed up in my life. Um, So, I mean, obviously finding out early and, and actually, you know, drawing a hard line, um, I think it was incredible for her. And I think made her healing probably, I don't want to say easier because I know it's hard, but just like it, it helped her to, to be in a place where she was able to heal and establish boundaries and feel healthy about that. And then having your support behind it, because if she's establishing boundaries and you guys are like, oh, we don't want to make grandma and grandpa mad, you know, then that would <laughs> That doesn't help anyone either. And I can also see that happening in my family. When people establish boundaries, it it makes my mom, she doesn't listen to my podcast, so I can say this. It makes my mom so nervous. Like, oh my gosh, she doesn't want to be around these family members who are really abusive and mean. Like, uh, oh no, that's going to make, it's going to make it so awkward if everyone's upset. It's like, it doesn't matter if it makes it awkward. It, like she has boundaries and good for her, you know, establishing those right. for herself so that she can survive the holidays, you know, like, yeah, early on when, um, when I started the Zico 33 project, that was, that was actually one of the, you know, conversations my wife and I had was, um, someone's not going to be happy. Oh, well, you know, (laughs) (laughs) we need to get this stuff out. So, you know, it, it, you know, it doesn't happen to someone else or at least provide more information maybe to help someone if they're in a rough spot. Right. And honestly, it is hard. Like, I know we laugh because I mean, what you either laugh or you cry, you know, like you only have so many options. So I I like to laugh about the things that are dysfunctional and terrible. But I mean, honestly, not to downplay it because there are people and and I mean, your family included, it's not easy to not to not be able to have 
a seamless, peaceful relationship with your family. It's not easy to have all of this like tension and awkwardness between people. It's really, really hard. And so many abuse victims and family members of abuse victims have to experience this. It's like, you know, oh, you told on this person for abusing you and and now, you know, they have to go to jail or now, you know, everybody knows and it was so selfish of you and we're mad. It's like people deal with that stuff constantly and it's it's horrible. So, I mean, when somebody is able to take the brave step to be like, all right, putting up these boundaries, regardless of what you people say, you know, like I have to stand and applaud because like that's still hard for me, like to just to not care, I guess, what people think. And to not care if there's tension in the family and stuff. So kudos to people who are able to do that because it's tough. Yeah, it's it's incredibly hard. Well, you've mentioned your blog. And I want to give people a link so they can read um, some of your articles. It's Ezekiel33project.org. And it's the numbers 33. So Ezekiel33project.org, Awareness and Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse. You've got some really good blogs on there. And I'm pretty sure I've read through your blogs multiple times because when you first reached out, which has been years now, I read through your blog. And um, then more recently, when we kind of reconnected, I've read through again, you've got some really good stuff for people to read. And I think that just your experience, especially, I know we have people who listen to the podcast because some people reach out to me and they've, they've been through sexual abuse within their families. And it's just a really hard thing to navigate. And so I think it's nice um, to know that other people are going through it. And, and, and like you said, there was like a desert of knowledge, nothing was there. And now, I mean, you have something to add, you know, to the world of advocacy and you have some really good things to say and some really good education um, for people. So Ezekiel33project.org is your website. And I want to encourage people to go there and read some of the great things that you have to say. And I know you have been doing 20 billion things with your life and then COVID and kind of some craziness. So um, <laughs> you, you, you said, you mentioned to me, you haven't been able to write as much, but I feel like a lot of your posts are just timeless anyway. And like, they're going to apply no matter when they were written, but it's, it's a great project. It's a great website and a great blog. And I love that your voice is out there. And just especially knowing like the boundaries that you put up and the care that you had for your daughter and how that was your number one priority. And like, listen, when it first happens and you're like, what the heck do we do? Like everybody's going to make some missteps or not do the perfect exact right thing while you're kind of reeling in the midst of a crisis. Um, But I think it's incredible that you stuck up for your daughter and you supported her. Like that's amazing to me because a lot of abuse victims don't get that. We just don't. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I, um, I'm glad to have, uh, done what I did. It wasn't, it wasn't the easiest. Sometimes the right decision was hard to come across at the time, but it just seemed like the right thing to do. Then with the, you know, with the blog itself, uh, you know, hopefully someone out there, uh, can get, you know, some sort of benefit from it, uh, from reading it and getting some information. Maybe it'll bring some clarity to, uh, you know, a really confusing time because when this stuff does happen, Kelly, you're, you're dead on. I mean, it's, there's a lot going on. My hope would be is that it might bring some clarity to someone who's going through a really rough patch. Right. And I definitely think that it will. And yeah, it's, it's so true. I, I kind of, I'm overwhelmed when I think of, of the stuff that people have to go through when abuse happens within their own families, because for me, I was able to separate my family from it completely the sexual abuse part of my story was a person who was not a blood relative who was not, I mean, he was a close family friend on the mission field, you know, but he was not somebody that was going to be in our everyday lives once we left the mission field. And I kind of kept that as my secret and kept it away from my, I was able to keep all of that separate when it's all meshed together. It, it gets crazy. And that's when you kind of understand why people make poor decisions or maybe don't support their kid as much as they could. It's still not good. Like we obviously don't condone it, but you kind of get why people's brains go to that place because it's terrifying and it's hard, you know, it's hard when it's within your own family. So I know that people are going to be encouraged by reading your blog posts and I know that they can contact you and reach out to you through the blog as well. Right? Yes. Um, 
So, so you, we were talking about technology challenges earlier. I think, <laughs> I think there may actually be something out there to, re, to reach out to me on. I'm almost certain, though, that if, if the contact form doesn't work, if you look at some of the blog posts, it's got my email on there. Oh, nice. Just, just, okay. feel, just, feel, just feel free to reach out. Reach out to Steve. He is going to answer all your questions. Oh, <laughs> careful. Like, <laughs> like, all right, Kelly, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> no, I just, um, I know that like you're, you've been an encouragement to me and I, I think people are going to definitely be encouraged by your blog. And I'm sure there are people listening now who already know all about your blog and who have already been blessed by it. But um, I want to thank you so much, Steve, for coming on the podcast. It's been a long time coming and I, it, crosses my mind every once in a while. I'm like, I need to get him on the podcast. We've finally done it. So that's good. And um, definitely just appreciate you taking the time to share some of your story and uh, the Ezekiel 33 project with us. Well, yeah, you bet. Th thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to connect. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.